is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hey, hey, welcome to the Mark Levin Show. Ben Shapiro in for the great one. The great one, of course, off for the holidays. But today is a great day. Today is a great day in America. Tax reform has become the law of the land. We'll go through all of the good things and a couple of the not-so-good things about tax reform. Big win for President Trump. Winning we were promised and winning we shall have. The last three weeks of policy have been the most conservative in terms of policy of any president that I can personally remember. Now, granted, I'm a young guy. The last Republican administration that I remember well was the Bush administration, W. But this is conservative policy. This is a conservative administration for the last three weeks, at least. There are some real accomplishments to stack up here at the end of the year. It's a great way to end the year, and the Democrats are losing their minds. This is the kind of winning we were promised, and this is the kind of winning that we shall have. But I assume that everyone's dead. I mean, let's just start there. Okay, so after net neutrality was repealed last week, I had heard that everyone was going to die. Right? This was This was... What I had heard, I mean, I had heard from the Democrats, everyone was literally going to die, just like we all died after the Paris Accords were withdrawn from, just like we all died after President Trump was elected. I'm getting kind of tired of dying and coming back to life, to be honest with you, but apparently this happens every three weeks. So last week, we all died after net neutrality, and somehow the tax reform package killed all of us. Like, I woke up this morning, and all I could hear was the horrifying cacophony of howling dogs mourning their dead masters, men, women. Children murdered in a mass slaughter by the Senate's passage of a relatively ordinary tax bill from the Republicans. Now, Republicans had been warned. The Democrats had said this was the end of the world. They had said this was Armageddon. Bruce Willis is on that asteroid, man. This is going to be the end of it. They warned that the streets would run red with blood. And they'd warned that all those dead people would probably end up moving to Chicago and voting for Democrats. But Republicans have been shocked to find themselves dead today. I know. I, I woke up and I was shocked. I was dead. It was really weird. It was really, really weird. And all of this thanks to President Trump. Everyone died because of President Trump and this tax cut. We were told it would happen, and so it did. You know, President Trump, he had pitched that tax cut by stating that he really only wanted what was best in life, to crush his enemies, to see them driven before him, to hear the lamentations of their women. And so it was. So it was. So much death. So much destruction. Like, is there anybody listening to this show? I mean, I don't even know how, how Producer Rich can actually... Produced, considering that he's been a corpse for at least the last 18 hours. It's, it's amazing. Yet somehow the world carries on. Not only does it carry on, things are going pretty swimmingly. Things are going pretty great today. Okay, so we're going to go through everything that's in this tax bill. We're also going to go through some breaking news. There's some breaking news. A bunch of companies have now come out, and they have said that they are going to do what the Democrats said was impossible, would never happen, could never happen. They're going to take the money that they were going to give to the federal government, and instead of it going to the federal government now, it's been given back to them through these tax cuts, and they're going to use that money to give their employees raises. They're going to use that money to create new jobs. They're going to use that money to create new investments, and the left are beside themselves. They don't know what to do. They are losing their minds. They just don't know what to do. The stock market continues to hold steady. S&P 500, up 5,000 points total so far this year. What are, they, they don't know, they, they don't know what to do. They're, they're going crazy. And so instead they've decided to completely lose their minds over what is by any measure 
a fairly ordinary Republican tax bill with solid cuts, particularly on the corporate tax side. So let's talk about what's in this bill for a second. Okay, not all of the media spin about what's in this bill, not all of the nonsense where the media tells you that your taxes are going to increase, and literally everyone in the country will see a tax decrease except for me. (laughs) If you live in a blue state and you make a lot of money, then there's a good shot you'll see a tax increase because of the state and local tax deductions that have been withdrawn from the federal tax bill. But I do actually believe that's good policy. Even if my taxes go up, I think that's good policy. I don't see a reason why the state of Texas should subsidize the state of California for having high tax rates. But let's go through what's actually in this bill. So let's begin from the beginning. Virtually everyone gets a tax cut. It's not just a tax cut for the rich. According to the Tax Policy Center, the average household is going to receive a tax cut of $1,610 in 2018. Now, if you're at the upper end of the income scale, then you're probably going to see a bigger tax cut. A much bigger tax cut. You know why? Because you're paying all the taxes, gang. If you're in the top 1%, you're paying all net taxes in the United States, essentially. If you're in the top quintile. If you're in the top 20% of income earners, you're paying all net taxes in the United States. So this idea, well, why aren't poor people getting more of a tax cut? It's hard to get a tax cut when you're not paying a lot in taxes. But everyone basically is seeing a tax cut. Second... The individual tax cuts, they decrease, they sunset in 2025. Now, they're likely to continue. The idea that those tax cuts are going to go away in 2025 is probably false. Congress doesn't like taking away tax cuts. They particularly don't like taking away tax cuts from the middle class. So the only reason they sunset in 2025 is for budgetary reasons. In order for Republicans to be able to pass this bill with 51 votes in the Senate, they essentially had to make it appear revenue neutral, as though it wasn't going to increase the deficit. The only way to do that was to have these provisions sunset in 2025. But again, the chances that Congress doesn't re-enshrine those tax cuts as law in 2024 or 2022, very, very low. The biggest move here is not actually the individual tax rates. The biggest move here is the corporate tax rates dropping dramatically. This was the number one factor in this tax bill. It's the thing that Trump wanted. It's the thing that the Republicans wanted. Everyone wanted to talk about the individual tax rates. But corporate tax rates were really the big issue here. And the reason for that is that individual tax rates in the United States are too high, no question. But corporate tax rates were clearly too high by any standard. The average European corporate tax rate is 18.5%. The corporate tax rate in the United States before this tax cut bill was 35%. So nearly doubled the average European tax rate for corporations. And that meant a lot of foreign direct investments in those European countries. It meant a lot of companies that were seeking to incorporate in places like Ireland. Every country that I'm aware of that has substantially cut its corporate tax rate has seen increased economic growth. The clearest example is Ireland. Ireland has a 12.5% corporate tax rate, and they've seen high sustained growth thanks to that healthy business climate. In 1995, they actually had a corporate tax rate of about 40%, and uh, in 1995, they cut it down to 12.5%. Since then, they've seen 23% GDP growth. How does that compare? Well, in the previous 35 years, they saw 7.2% GDP growth. So their, their growth skyrocketed. The same thing is true in Germany. The same thing is true in Spain. Every country that creates a more competitive business climate draws more investment. That's true of the United States, too. The bill does increase the child tax credit. This is one I will admit that I am mixed on. I'm not super warm on the child tax credit just because I don't think the government has any business telling you where you should and should not spend your money, or whether you should or should not have children. On the other hand, you know, this is a, it's a sweetener for Republicans in terms of public relations. They get to look like they're helping out middle-class families. There's a $2,000 per child tax credit, sort of a gap between conservatives and libertarians on this particular issue. 
High income earners in high tax states pay more. As I mentioned earlier, Democrats who are suggesting that this tax cut is only for the rich, it's not for people like me. I'm going to pay more in taxes. Something else that this bill does, it downsizes the need for itemized deductions. So it doubles the standard deduction. What that means is that fewer Americans are going to bother with the standard itemizing, with, with, the, downsi- with the, the itemizing of deductions. Because why do you need to go through every receipt you ever had when instead you can just take the standard deduction, which is now twice what it was before, fill out your taxes on the back of a postcard, skip the accountant, and get them in. Makes taxes a lot simpler. Another big move. This one is a huge move. The individual mandate is now gone. It is not law anymore. The individual mandate, which was the centerpiece of Obamacare, the individual mandate which suggested that you have to, by law, buy a health insurance program, that is now gone. Now, that is a very good preliminary move. But there are questions about what the Republicans do next on the individual mandate. Daniel Horowitz has pointed this out over at Conservative Review. The fact is that the individual mandate is terrible policy. It's unconstitutional. But it also supports lower rates in the individual health care market, the health insurance market. The reason being that there are a lot of sick people in the individual insurance market. If you can force a bunch of healthy people into the individual insurance market, then they will be paying higher prices to subsidize all the people who are sick. You get rid of all the healthy people or they drop out, the prices rise on the people who are remaining. Now, the reason the individual mandate was eliminated in this version of the tax bill is pretty simple. It reduces the deficit in the bill. Right? The goal here, again, is that you had to get a ruling from the Congressional Budget Office that the bill was revenue neutral, that it didn't increase the deficit. And so by cutting the individual mandate, you end up also cutting the, the deficit and making the bill revenue neutral. So why in the world would the individual mandate, why would getting rid of the individual mandate actually lower the deficit? Well, the reason is because the individual mandate says you must go get insurance. Well, if you're eligible for Medicaid, that was encouraging people to sign up for Medicaid, even if they didn't need to sign up for Medicaid. They're just going and doing it. Young, healthy people signing up for Medicaid. That creates a higher tax burden. That creates a higher spending burden on the federal government. So the individual mandate is eliminated here. So how is that hole for unhealthy people in the insurance market going to get backfilled? Now, normally, the conservative response is deregulate. Hey, get rid of the rest of Obamacare. Get rid of the regulations. Let the insurance companies handle it on the state level. Let the states handle it on the state level. Freedom in the market will make for better options. Let people bond together in social groups and buy insurance. I mean, there there are plenty of other options. Instead of doing that, it looks like the Republicans are moving toward the Alexander Murray plan, which would essentially set up a massive subsidy for sick people in the individual insurance markets instead of the individual mandate. So that creates a new entitlement. So that is one drawback of getting rid of the individual mandate, but they should get rid of the individual mandate. Another point here. They did open the, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling. That's a great thing. And there's estimates that the amount of oil under the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is equivalent to the amount of oil in Saudi Arabia. So it will dramatically increase America's productivity on the oil front, which is great. The real downside of this bill is the possibility of a deficit increase. But that's just because Republicans never cut anything. So the next step has to be Republicans cutting things. Tax cuts are wonderful. Tax cuts are great. A growing economy lifts all boats. A rising tide lifts all boats. But We do have to cut, okay? There do have to be some cuts here. The next thing that has to happen is a restructuring of Medicaid, is a restructuring of Social Security. That's something we have to do. And I understand it's politically difficult. I understand it's a little bit politically toxic, but you're not going to get a lot of these chances. You're not going to get a lot of opportunities to make a difference here. And is it worth making a structural change to these programs to ensure the survival of the country? I think the answer is certainly yes, considering that 
two-thirds of the federal budget is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. So great on the tax cuts. The other shoe that has to drop now is that you actually have to cut some of the spending. Now, as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about the full-scale insanity exhibited by the left in the wake of the passage of what is, by any measure, a very good bill for American taxpayers. And I am talking full insanity. I had a particularly spicy run-in with one Rosie O'Donnell, who may or may not actually be a federal felon. I'll tell you why. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. If you enjoy the nice, warm feeling of a bath of leftist tears, then today is your day. Congratulations. An early Christmas gift. Last day of Hanukkah gift for all of you. Very exciting stuff. So yesterday... The Republicans pass in the House this this tax reform package, and then the Senate passes it. And protesters occupy the upper tier of the of the Congress, and they begin yelling. And here's what it sounded like yesterday in Congress as this thing was passed. The actual medicine is not produced here. It's produced in Ireland because... The chair has detected a disturbance in the gallery in contravention of the law... Okay, so just astonishing. They're standing up there shouting, kill the bill, don't kill us. Well, they're all alive. I mean, like nothing's happened to them except their taxes went down. (laughs) My favorite was there was apparently some lady who decided to take off her top to protest. I have a couple of questions. I have so many questions, actually, about this particular tactic. First of all, does she realize she's in Congress? Like every perv in America is sitting in that room. If you actually want to disincentivize tax cuts, what you probably shouldn't do is protest the tax cuts by taking off your top and showing your boobs. Like, half the guys in that room have probably sexually assaulted or harassed somebody. So, I mean, if, if you want if you want a tax cut every day, then please, by all means, continue doing that in the upper chamber of, of Congress. But this does not make a lot of sense. Well, this was not the only – these were not the only crazy people. Rosie O'Donnell lost her mind, okay? And when I say lost her mind, she didn't have much of it left. And Rosie O'Donnell really is not one of the great intellects of our time. But she tweeted this out in the middle of the vote yesterday. She tweeted out, Susan – this is to Susan Collins. Two million dollars cash. Call if you want to negotiate. Do you think your family is proud? Senator Collins. She spells it with two N's. Senator. Woman, mother, grandmother, sister, daughter. You have betrayed us all. And she says, how about this? I promise to give two million dollars to Senator Susan Collins and two million to Senator Jeff Flake. If they vote no, no, I will not kill Americans for the super rich. DM me, Susan. DM me, Jeff. No bleep. Two million cash each. So Rosie O'Donnell openly offering bribery in violation of federal law. So that's exciting. This is a violation, by the way, of 18 U.S. Code, Section 201B, in which, and I quote, it states, whoever directly or indirectly corruptly gives, offers, or promises anything of value to any public official or person who has been selected to be a public official to influence any official act shall be fined under this title or not more than three times the monetary equivalent of the thing of value, whichever is greater, or imprisoned for not more than 15 years or both, and may be disqualified from holding any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. So in other words, she could have to pay $12 million in fines for offering $4 million worth of bribes or spend 15 years in prison. So that's an actual violation of federal law, what she just did there. Now, will it be prosecuted? What I tweeted this morning is that if President Trump instructs Attorney General Sessions to begin an investigation into Rosie O'Donnell, the carving on Mount Rushmore of President Trump's face will begin immediately. Immediately. 
And they'll, they'll, they'll start with the, with, the, with the Trump nose. I mean, they will just start carving that sucker right into the mountain. And somehow <laughs> locks her up. He locks up Rosie O'Donnell. Ah, the, the, sheer, the sheer joy. Ah, the happiness. Just in time for Christmas. Ah. So I tweeted this out. And Rosie O'Donnell got mad at me. She was very angry at me. And so what she tweeted out, it, she tweeted this out, and it wasn't very nice. She tweeted out, suck my bleep, Ben. She tweeted this at me. To which I immediately responded, you're already a felon, Rosie. Don't be a homophobic sexual harasser, too. Hashtag me, too. I mean, it's been a day. I mean, being, being sexually harassed by Rosie O'Donnell online for suggesting that she shouldn't engage in open bribery. Is it fair to say they may be crazy at this point? That they may have lost whatever was left of their feeble brains. Love it so much. Ah, the sheer joy, the sheer happiness of, of, of watching the left completely implode in on itself over yet another piece of basically normal Republican policy. And again, I don't want to overstate the importance of this tax cut. It's, it's, it is important. It is important. But to put it in context, it's mostly important on the corporate side. It is not the biggest tax cut ever on the individual tax cut side. It's not bigger on the individual tax cut side than the 81 Reagan tax cuts. Uh, I don't think it's bigger necessarily than the 2001-2003 Bush tax cuts, but it's an important piece of policy. Now, coming up, we're going to talk about the Democrats' response to this. We talked about the media and Rosie O'Donnell. I want to talk about the Democrats' response to this because when I talk about severe mind loss, Nancy Pelosi, the Botox has hit her prefrontal cortex and there's not much left. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. The Mark Levin Show. This is the home of the July 4th Americans. And you can call at 877-381-3811. Yes, indeed. Merry Christmas to you. Happy Hanukkah. It's the last day of Hanukkah. And what a holiday season it is. Bringing Christmas back in style and the Democrats just weeping over it. They're trying to make some Christmas references today. I just, I loved this. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, well, not, oh, God forbid, the Minority Leader in the House. Sorry from my mouth to Satan's ears there. Nancy Pelosi, she has lost all sense of reason, decency. So she said today that Republican tax bills would have killed Tiny Tim. What I love about this, I love a few things about this, to tell you the truth. The first thing that I love about this is that Nancy Pelosi can't find an actual victim. <laughs> like, there's no one. She can't point to this guy. She goes, this guy is going to pay for what you did today. This guy's going to pay because you gave him more of his own money back. That one right there. He's going to be the one who pays the price. So instead, she has to dig into the annals of literary history. And what does she come up with? She comes up with a Charles Dickens character who first was put on the public literary scene in 1843 in London. That's where she goes. She goes to Tiny Tim from A Christmas Carol, who, by the way, was saved not by government intervention, but by, wait for it, private charity based on religious observance. Yes, that's the actual story of A Christmas Carol, not the government version, where Tiny Tim gets sent to a workhouse. The actual version, right, where Tiny Tim is taken care of by a religious community fostered by belief in Christ. Right, that, that, that's the actual Christmas carol for people who can read. Nancy Pelosi obviously can't. Another thing I love about the, the Tiny Tim reference is that Tiny Tim's parents, the Cratchits, you know, they're obviously quite poor. Is there any doubt that Nancy Pelosi probably would have encouraged the Cratchits to abort Tiny Tim so they both could have pursued a career in body painting? That's probably the most likely outcome of, of a Christmas carol, according to Nancy Pelosi. 
Nancy Pelosi shows up. She's the ghost of Christmas future, but she doesn't appear to Scrooge. She appears to the Cratchits, and she shows them an image of themselves painting in France for no money. But at least they don't have that crippled kid, Tiny Tim, that little jerk. So she started off with that. Then she got even worse. Then she decided that it was worthwhile to suggest that the GOP tax plan was theft. You have to understand the logic here. The logic here, that the GOP, that it is theft, it is literally theft for the government to say to you, I will not take that money out of your pocket. And this is how thievery works, I know. I mean, if you're ever walking in the New York subway system, all the time what pickpockets do, they come up to you, they shove a five in your pocket, and they go, boom, you just got played. Theft. That's how I pickpocketed you. I just put your own money back in your pocket. You see what I did right there? I took the money out of your wallet, and then I put it in your pocket. You see how I did that? Boom, pickpocketed. Hey, how crazy do you have to be to believe that you keeping more of your own money amounts to theft? It only makes sense in a world where all of your rights come from government, where your property rights don't pre-exist government. They're not something that is endemic to you as a human being, that is innate to you, that is an inalienable right. It's not that you, as a person made in the image of God, have the capacity to go out and create and accrue property and make transactions with others. It's that the government allows you to do these things. Out of the benevolence of its kindly Grinch heart, the government allows you to engage in commerce and to have property and to have all these wonderful things. And so if the government gives you back too much property, it's like you're stealing from the government, don't you see? It's like you just went in your dad's sock drawer and you stole money out of his wallet. You moved aside the Playboy and you stole the money right out of his wallet. It's just like that. It's thievery. Thievery! Nancy Pelosi moves those dentures in and out and starts, starts to talk. And here we go. This GOP tax scam is simply theft, monumental, brazen theft from the American middle class and from every person who aspires to reach it. The GOP tax scam is not a vote for an investment in growth or jobs. It is a vote to install a permanent plutocracy in our nation. They'll be cheering that later. Plutocracy? Plutocracy? Does she, ever, does she know what the word plutocracy means? Like, really, or does she just think that she's talking about the rule of Pluto the dog from the Disney cartoons? Like, does she understand that a plutocracy, you know, an oligarchy that is run by the people at the top of the scale? You know who that really describes? It describes Congress controlling all of your money. If you want to talk about a corrupt plutocracy, talk about Nancy Pelosi and all of her friends sucking money out of your pocket with a giant vacuum cleaner. And then deigning to give you back some of it. Right? That's plutocracy, these corrupt buffoons running your life for you. But then Pelosi goes even further. Nancy Pelosi, who has never met a founding document she didn't dislike, she says that what the Republicans did by giving you back your, your own money, they're ruining the image of the founding fathers. Do you understand? They're undermining the message of the American Revolution, is that, which is that we needed greater centralized government and higher taxes. Did you know that was the actual lesson of the American Revolution? You may have learned in school things like don't tread on me and no taxation without representation. You may have learned that there is this group of Americans who boarded a British ship and threw tea overboard to protest taxes on tea. You may have heard that Americans were really mad about something called the Stamp Act or the Townsend Act, right? You may have heard all of these things back in elementary school. You would have been wrong. What the American Revolution was really about is that we wanted an even bigger king. What we wanted is a king who'd give us even higher taxes. And if that king had lowered taxes, if that king had allowed us to vote for lower taxes, that dude, the founding that guy, 
What the Founding Fathers really wanted was an all-powerful father figure who made everything better by taking your money and then deigning to give you back some of it, but not very much, because if he gives you back too much, I mean, you're stupid. You're not going to know what to do with that money. Here's Nancy Pelosi somehow rewriting American history so that George Washington is actually Woodrow Wilson. It does violence to the vision of our founders. It disrespects the sacrifice of our men and women in uniform who are a large part of our middle class and to whom we owe a future worthy of their sacrifice. And it betrays the future and betrays the aspirations of our children. It disrespects our military. This is Nancy. I've never met a military man or woman whose salary I want to pay. Pelosi talking here. It was the Democrats who insisted on sequestration, on massive cuts to our military. It's the Democrats who have spent decades undermining military strength. It's the Democrats who have suggested that America is too militaristic. It was the Democrats who, during the Iraq War, were sending out people like Dick Durbin to say that American troops were acting like Nazis, like Pol Pot. And Nancy Pelosi is saying that a tax cut undermines the military? You mean from the same president who's freed our military to finally crush ISIS? You mean from the same president who's been working diligently to get rid of sequestration so that we can actually spend what we need to on the military? That guy? The one who's actually freed up General Mattis to do what he needs to do at Department of Defense? As opposed to using the military as some sort of social engineering tool? This is so backwards and disconnected from reality. The only thing that allows it to go forward, by the way, is the media bias. I mean, the media bias is just insane. We'll get to that in a little while. The media bias here is just beyond the pale. But I need to show, I, I just need to show you how disconnected the Democrats are from reality. And the more good policy Republicans pass, the more disconnected Democrats will be from reality. What we're seeing now from the Trump administration, from Republicans in Congress, yes, it's them. They get credit. But it's really you. Okay, it's you. It's conservatives like you who pushed. It's conservatives who held the line and said, here is what we want. Not everything is good policy. Not everything you propose is good policy. But when you, when there is good policy, we celebrate with you. We cheer you. We are happy. We are excited. We're overjoyed. If you hold that conservative line, then the, our politicians, the ones that we elect, the ones we support, those guys will come around and do what you want them to do. Milton Friedman famously said that politics isn't about electing the right politicians, it's about making the wrong politicians do the right things. I think there's a lot to that. The Democrats, meanwhile, continue to simply hope against hope that, that the American public never hears the right message. That's why shows like this exist, why Mark exists. That's why I'm here. Now, Chuck Schumer, who is just a font of misinformation, he comes out and he says that the public knows this bill is really bad. The public, deep down in the cockles of their tiny hearts, they know that the, the bill is truly terrible for them, even though their, their income is about to grow. They don't want to discuss it. They don't want to have it have sunlight shed on it. They don't want anyone to know what's in it because it is so, so bad. And the public knows it. Okay, so, yeah, again, the idea that the public knows what's in the bill, the public clearly does not know what's in the bill. The public clearly does not know what's in the bill. How do I know that? Because there's a poll out shows 50% of Americans, 5-0% of Americans, think that this bill increases their taxes. That is just wrong. Okay, there's, there's certain poll questions where the answer is, you're just wrong. 50% of Americans will not see their taxes increased. 80.43%, last I checked, percent of Americans will see their taxes decrease under this bill. Only 5% of Americans will see their taxes increase. And again, that's people mostly like me, right? high-income owners in blue states. The public doesn't know what's in the bill because the Democrats are working day and night to prevent them from learning 
what is in the bill. They're spending day after day pushing to make sure that nobody knows what's in these bills. You know, look, the bill isn't perfect. It got rid of some exemptions that I think helped some people. Yeah, it, it's. I wish that they would make a flat tax in, in terms of income tax. I wish they had gone for broke. But with a 51 seat, listen, Mitch McConnell gets some credit here, okay? We bash Mitch McConnell when he deserves it. Mitch McConnell deserves some credit here. He has a narrow caucus. He has a 52-seat caucus. You know, given what he's really got, it's usually a 51-seat caucus. That means that he really had to cobble something together here. He cobbled it together, and not only that, the last-minute maneuvering by Tom Cotton to stick the repeal of the individual mandate into this bill was a work of heartbreaking genius. It was very, very bright to do that. Good for Mitch McConnell. Good for Speaker Ryan. There will be times when they're up for criticism. We've been doing it all year. There will be times when we have to bash them. But when they when they do it right, we ought to celebrate. So this is this is a moment when the Republicans should look at the administration, should look even more so at Congress, and should say, thank you for at least getting this right. Because here's the truth. If we hit the end of this year and there's not one signature accomplishment on Trump's portfolio from the legislature, despite Republican unified control of the Congress, that looks really bad for President Trump. Now they've got some momentum going into the new year. Now, if President Trump, he should just shut down for the holidays, shut down the Twitter, don't comment. If you're going to comment, just talk about how great the tax bill is. Yeah, don't give the media anything to run with. Just let the last message of the year be that Trump has big wins. And by the way, later in the show, we're going to talk about some more big wins that Trump is coming up with. And they're just making Democrat heads spin. Really, in, in a serious way. One huge win that's just come out, Chuck Schumer made a comment the other day. The media have been saying that corporate tax cuts, they don't do anything for job creation. They don't do anything for bonuses or job creation. They never, they never float down to the people at the lowest level. They don't, they don't float down to the employees. I have the proof in my hand right here that they were lying, that it's not true, and that Trump's win streak continues. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader, just came out today, and here is what he said. He said, quote, Over the last 10 years, AT&T has paid an average tax rate of 8% a year. They have 80,000 fewer employees today than they had then. Tax breaks don't lead to job creation. They lead to big CEO salaries and money for the very, very wealthy. And this is the typical Democrat line, right? The line is that it's totally crazy, totally crazy to think that if you cut taxes on corporations, that that will be passed down to employees. Literally the same hour, the same hour that Chuck Schumer was arguing that corporations never, ever, ever do anything for their employees when they get a tax cut. Literally the same time he was arguing this, the same hour AT&T announced, the company that he was ripping, announced that once Trump signed the bill into law, they would, quote, invest an additional $1 billion in the United States in 2018 and pay a special $1,000 bonus to more than 200 thousand AT&T American employees. And they noted that if Trump signed the bill before Christmas, they'll receive the bonus over the holidays. AT&T's chairman and CEO said in a statement, quote, Congress, working closely with the president, took a monumental step to bring taxes paid by U.S. businesses in line with the rest of the industrialized world. This tax reform will drive economic growth and create good-paying jobs. In fact, we will increase our U.S. investment and pay a special bonus to our U.S. employees. It's not just AT&T. Boeing just announced an immediate commitment to invest 
an additional $300 million in three areas that will directly benefit their employees. $100 million for corporate giving, with funds used to support demand for employee gift match programs and for investments in Boeing's focus area for charitable giving, in education, in communities, for veterans and military personnel. This is according to Ryan Saavedra over at my site, The Daily Wire. $100 million bucks for workforce development. $100 million for workplace of the future facilities. Boeing announces that they are in favor of the new tax reform bill. Fifth Third Bank Corp., which is a bank headquartered in Ohio, they announced that because of the corporate tax reductions, they would actually raise their minimum hourly wage to $15. Why, look at that. Why, look at that. It looks as though when companies have more money to spend, they voluntarily raise wages to maintain the employment of their best employees. Isn't that a shocker? So you don't actually have to legislate $15 minimum wage. Companies will get to it voluntarily. By the way, if you didn't already know this, you're adult. And the reason the vast majority of Americans are not making $15 minimum wage is because they're making a lot more than $15. Hey, this, this company, by the way, Fifth Third Bank Corp., they're also going to give a one-time bonus of 1000 bucks to more than 13,500 of their employees. And then there's Wells Fargo. They announced they, too, would increase their minimum hourly pay to $15. And they would aim for $400 million in philanthropic donations next year due to the newly passed GOP tax bill. Comcast announced they would give $1,000 bonuses to over 100,000 eligible frontline non-executive employees and invest $50 billion bucks over the next five years in infrastructure based on passenger tax reform. Oops. So all the Democrats claiming, oh, corporations, they're just going to invest in stock buybacks. This money will never see the employees. This money will never make its way down to the low-level guy on the food chain. It already is on the first day. Now, something is happening here that I have been advocating for a very long time, and I'm excited about it. And that is corporations are starting to recognize that if they do not make clear, that if they do not make clear to their own employees the impact of public policies on their corporations, people will vote not in the interest of the corporations for which they work. Now, this is very different. What's happening right now is very different than what happened early on in the administration during the transition period when Trump basically gave some sort of cronyistic giveaway to Carrier in an attempt to get a headline that they were going to maintain jobs in Indiana. And I opposed that. I thought it was dumb. The reason I thought it was dumb is because it was a specific giveaway to a specific company. It looked like what they call crony capitalism. It looked like what really should be called corporatism to me. This is not that. This is a broad-based public policy and companies saying this is a good public policy for us. It's not a giveaway specifically to our company. It is a broad-based policy available to many people, and we are some of those people who benefit, and we want to make clear to our employees that we benefit from this policy. This is good because employees should know that they are dependent on the success of their companies, and they should know that good public policy for their companies is good for them, that they are not at odds with their employers, that employees are not at odds with their employers, that they are there to make money from their employers, particularly in the private sector. When, when your employer does better as a general rule, and if there's open competition in the marketplace, your employer will have to pay you more. And that is what you're watching today. So good for these employers. And I'd say, you know, Bill Crystal over at Weekly Standard, he tweeted something out about how this whole shtick sort of made him uncomfortable. How he didn't feel particularly comfortable with this notion that companies were sounding off in support of the policy. No, it's good that these companies are sounding off in support of broad policy. What would be bad is if they were stumping for bribes. They're not. They're saying you lower all of our taxes, it will be better for everyone. And you know what? They're right. As we continue, we'll talk about the media response to all of this, which has been swift and ridiculous. Ben Shapiro went from our hotel.
With a daily fake news dump pouring through your TV, mobile phones and computers, you may have missed some real news like the recent study in the journal Cell Metabolism. Scientists suspected a correlation between growing rates of obesity and processed foods, but what this study discovered was that these foods also appear to lead people to overeat. Here's the bottom line. You need fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet, which is why I recommend that you start taking Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. Just one scoop of Field of Greens has a full serving of real USDA-certified organic fruits and vegetables. It helps boost your immunity using antioxidants, prebiotics, and probiotics. This is real food, not some fake supplement lab powder. Just read the nutrition facts panel on the side. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, that's BrickHouseLevin.com, and you'll get 15% off your first order with the offer code LEVIN. You know you're not going to start cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, so let's not pretend. Just get one full cup of fruits and one full cup of vegetables every day with Field of Greens. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouseLevin.com, offer code LEVIN. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. All righty, Ben Shapiro in for Mark today. Mark is out for his holiday vacation, a well-deserved rest for the great one who has spent the entire year leading us to a better constitutional America. So thanks, Mark, for letting me sit in, as always. So the media have decided to go full-fledged anti-Republican, anti-Trump. I mean, is, that, is that anything new? But a big piece of legislation just passed, and they have to let the cat out of the bag, just how crazy they are. See, this is the, this is the beauty, I suppose, of, of being President Trump, is no matter what he's done this year, the media response has always been twice as extreme as whatever it is that President Trump has done. You wonder why the media's numbers are in the toilet? Not in terms of ratings. The ratings are great because now people are involved in politics in a way they weren't before. Right Now people are watching politics for entertainment is the truth. But you know, President Trump has gotten people watching politics, but people don't trust the media. If you look at the media trust numbers, they're not very good. Put aside Trump's trust numbers for a second. The media's trust numbers aren't good. And the media are in the trust business a lot more than politicians are. Because remember, politicians only have to compete with other politicians for trust. But the media is invested in the business of trust. The media are involved in getting you to trust them so that you trust their narratives. And they have not been trustworthy on this tax bill, of course. They've been wildly untrustworthy. I mentioned a little bit earlier some of the statistics on how Americans feel about President Trump's new tax reform, the Republicans' tax reform. This tax reform plan is not popular by polling data. Uh, It is actually the least popular polling data for any tax plan in the last 30 years, 40 years. In fact, the GOP tax cuts are actually less popular than Democratic tax hikes, than the HW tax hike. I'm looking at the statistics right in front of me right now, just looking at the polls. The most popular tax cut was the Reagan tax cut number one. 1981, Gallup found that had 51% approval, 20%, 26% disapproved, so plus 25. The W tax cut in 2001, plus 12, 49 to 37 the extensions of the Bush tax cuts under Obama because of Republican Congress that cut a deal with Obama, those were popular as well. The Clinton tax hike was 10 points underwater. Only 34% of Americans approved of the Clinton tax hike. Only 41% of Americans approved of the H.W. Bush tax hike. It's why H.W. Bush lost office. 
But right now, the average polling data on the tax cuts, the, the Trump tax cuts, which are going to benefit Americans all the way across the board, and are already benefiting Americans, and are already companies, as I just mentioned at the end of last hour, Boeing, already hiring new people, giving bonuses. AT&T, already giving bonuses to its employees, hundreds of thousands of employees. Banks in Ohio. All of these companies are beginning to to take advantage of the tax cuts that aren't even in place yet, right? Trump hasn't formally signed them. I'm not even sure he formally signs them until after Christmas. But the Trump tax cut popularity numbers are in the toilet. Only 32% of Americans approve of the Trump tax cut. 46% disapprove. And not only that, a huge percentage of Americans don't even understand that the tax cuts, that the GOP tax cuts, cut taxes, right? If you look at the polls, what they show is that half of Americans think that the Republican tax cuts actually increase taxes. Now, that can change. And what's changing that is the headlines that are being brought forth. President Trump doing his job. The the headlines of, from companies that are coming forward and saying, listen, we are glad that you just decreased our taxes. Right? There's a new poll out today that's showing that uh, from Politico, showing that a plurality of Americans, 44 to 35, support the GOP tax plan with most people believing that it's going to help people like them. The numbers are a little bit narrow, right? They shouldn't be this narrow. As, as far as whether people think that the tax plan helps people like them or hurts people like them, only 35% of Americans, according to this new political poll, think that the tax plan helps them. 33% think that it hurts them. Low-income families, they think that only 36% of Americans think that low-income families are helped by the bill. 35% think that they are hurt by the bill. But overall, the numbers are moving in the in the right direction. I mean, the numbers have been terrible for a while. The reason the numbers have been terrible is because of the media coverage. I mean, that is the number one reason. Yes, Republicans suck at pushing their own agenda. Yes, Republicans are terrible at explaining what it is that they're doing. Yes, having Paul Ryan explain things is somewhat like having Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller's Day Off explain things to you. You just want to fall asleep or take or take some form of Valium to put yourself out of your misery. All of that is true. But it really is the media bias that's, that's doing the heavy lifting here. If you look at the headline from Reuters and AP yesterday after the tax bill, it was clear that it was going to pass. The headline from Reuters was something to the effect of Republican tax bill benefiting the rich passes. It's like, well, it, not really. I mean, it's benefiting everybody. I will show you what I mean. So Savannah Guthrie of NBC, and she was interviewing Paul Ryan this morning. And Paul Ryan is talking up the tax bill, talking about how great it is. And Savannah Guthrie asks him this. Listen, this is insane. Do we have the Savannah Guthrie clip? No, we don't. Okay, so Savannah Guthrie, I'm sorry, she goes ahead and she actually says to Paul Ryan, there's an actual exchange where Savannah Guthrie says to Paul Ryan, are you insane? Right here, here she is. Okay, let's play. The problem is, as a lot of CEOs has said, really candidly, I'm looking at a list of CEOs who said, we don't plan to reinvest. What they're planning to do is to do stock buybacks, to line the pockets of shareholders. Let me quote Michael Bloomberg, a billionaire, hardly an enemy of business. He said, CEOs aren't waiting on a tax cut to jumpstart the economy, a favorite phrase of politicians who have never run a company or to hand out raises. It's pure fantasy to think that the tax bill will lead to significantly higher wages and growth. I'll ask you plainly, are you living in a fantasy world? Okay, that is an insane question. Can you imagine if Savannah Guthrie had had the guts to ask that to President Obama or, or to Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer in the middle of Obamacare? They were literally going out there every day and lying directly to the faces of the American people. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Everyone knew 
that was a lie. Everyone knew that was not true. Did Savannah Guthrie ever say, are you insane? Did she ever say, are you crazy for believing this? And not only, not only is this ridiculous, not only is it is it crazy for Savannah Guthrie to ask this, she says it's crazy to say that companies are going to reinvest in their workers, except that today there are like eight stories of companies reinvesting in their workers, giving bonuses, you know, handing out Christmas bonuses, pledging reinvestment. So Savannah Guthrie's already shown to be a liar. That wasn't the worst. Katie Turr was the worst. Katie Turr, uh, the NBC news reporter, she was on with Dave Bratt, the Republican congressman from Virginia, friend of the program. And Katie Turr literally says to Dave Bratt, the only reason basically you're voting for this bill is because it's going to benefit you economically. It's because you're rich. That's why. What's the median household income of your district? Uh, it's right about 60. We have it at 73,000, something around there. What are, what are you making, if you don't mind? What's in your bank account right now? In my bank account? Well, what, that, what tax I, bracket are you are you going to be under under this bill? Well, of course, I, I got the chart for you here. I'll be uh, probably in the 24% bracket. 24% Everybody bracket? can go look up their rates. Okay. Republican Congressman yep. Dave Brown. And what are you at? What are you at, Katie? Because I want to make sure you do know. well, too. I haven't taken a look at it. You don't know? Republican. I'm also, oh. also not a lawmaker, so I'm not involved in, 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 in marking up you're this bill rail. or selling it to the American people Well, like we'll you check are. out what you're making, Republican too, Katie, so it's fair and balanced. Dave. Well, good for Dave Bratt, because I guarantee you Katie Turb makes more money than Dave Bratt. Dave Bratt says he pays in the 24% tax range. I believe that's somewhere under the new bill, between about $85,000 and $150,000. I promise you Katie Turb is making more money than that. Okay, but, but the implication is that Republicans are so evil. President Trump, he's so evil. The only reason you would support a tax reduction is if it benefits you personally. So I'm proof positive that this is not the case. Okay, this actual tax bill probably costs me money. I live in California. That means that I'm going to get dinged on my mortgage if I buy a new house. It means that I will be dinged on my state and local income taxes. I'm not going to see a tax decrease in any significant amount from this bill. I'm probably one of the few people who falls into the tax increase category. Okay, but I'm for the bill anyway. You know why? Because on principle, people should keep more of their own money. But the implication from Katie Turr that you only are doing this if you're a rich person who wants to line their own pockets, well, if that's the case, Katie, then why don't you support it? Since it's probably going to line your pocket too. Right? This notion... Democrats are the, the great altruistic helpers by stealing your money and handing it to somebody else. They're so altruistic. They're so wonderful. You know, they're rich, but they don't want their own money. They want to give away their money. But you, you're rich, and you want to keep your money. That makes you a bad person. That's the implication from Katie Turr, and it's just nonsense. First of all, a lot of these legislators are not rich. Second of all, the vast majority of people who voted for President Trump are certainly not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. And finally, just because you're wealthy and you support a bill doesn't mean that you support the bill because you're wealthy. Correlation does not equal causation. I was in favor of cutting taxes when I was making like 60 grand a year. And when I was making zero dollars a year effectively as a student, I was in favor of cutting taxes. Okay, and I'm in favor of cutting taxes now and I make a lot more money than that. Because on principle, your money is your money. But the media are playing this game where everyone who supports the bill is corrupt and you'd be crazy to believe that corporations having... Their money back means that they'll spend it on things. And and then they play this game where they, they trot out supposed victims, right? So the, there's a, a fellow who's a healthcare activist. He suffers from ALS. I mean, it's really tragic. And apparently he was on NBC because he was sitting outside Lindsey Graham's office, and he wanted to question Lindsey Graham about the tax bill. Now, by question, what we really mean is he wanted a photo op of him telling Lindsey Graham that Lindsey Graham doesn't care about people who suffer from severe degenerative diseases like ALS, right? That's really what he wanted. And Lindsey Graham wasn't going to fall for that game, because why would you? 
Right? It's a waste of time. This isn't going to be an honest discussion. It's a photo op. And so naturally, it's a lose-lose for Graham because NBC is going to show this guy on TV either saying Lindsey Graham ran away from him or showing tape of Lindsey Graham being excoriated by the guy. Right? It's a lose-lose for Graham, which is why he didn't engage. But you get clips like this where we're supposed to believe that Lindsey Graham really didn't engage because he just doesn't care about people with ALS. I said, Senator Graham, he was talking about John McCain, his beloved colleague, who, like me, is dying of a brain disease. And he was talking about John McCain. And I said, Senator Graham, will you talk to me for a minute about this bill? And he ran away into a place where I'm not allowed to go as a civilian. I know that NBC and MSNBC have footage of that. You could try to find it. He ran away, and that exemplifies that moment. I was there with Megan Anderson, a woman who's almost totally paralyzed. That moment exemplified how Republicans are treating this legislation. No, 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 no. Okay, this moment on TV exemplifies how the media treats serious public policy issues by bringing out people who generate sympathy in you because they have some sort of terrible condition, but without discussing the actual policy implications of the decision. Right? Why is this guy making a point that somebody who doesn't have ALS couldn't make? The answer is he's not. The entire point here is to generate anger against Lindsey Graham, against Republicans. And this is the game the media are playing. This is why the poll numbers are bad. But guess what? When money enters people's pockets, if they pay attention, if they are informed, if President Trump uses his Twitter for powers of good and not for powers of trollery, if he uses his Twitter to inform the American people that the money that's in their pocket is because he and the Republicans are making sure that it is there, then this will turn into a win for Republicans. We'll take your calls on that when we continue here on the Mark Levin Show. Plus, David from a sort of establishment conservative, has some weird ideas on what conservatives should think about President Trump. You know, ones that I take particular exception to. We'll talk about it. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. So let's take some calls on the tax plan. I obviously am excited that Republicans finally have a signature achievement in the first year. They needed one. President Trump needed one badly. Because if we had gotten to the end of the year and there was no signature legislative achievement, that would have been a very unsuccessful first year for the president with regards to the legislature. He's done a lot of good things with regard to executive policy that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. I'm going to do my summation of the year, give him sort of a final grade for the year. But I want to get your thoughts on this, I'm going to take people who disagree first. So, Steve in Napa, California, you're on the Mark Levin Show with Ben Shapiro. Go for it, Steve. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just want to make a, a couple of observations. Uh, when this tax plan was first announced, uh, maybe, what, two months ago, whatever it was, mm -hmm. I was listening to the station, and I can't remember if it was Mark Levine or Michael Savage uh, tore it apart because they saw it for what it was, a, a tax grab for the rich and a uh, 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 screwing over of the middle class. Uh, another observation, uh, in recent political history, and when I say recent, I mean since Reagan, every time there's been a Republican presidency, the economy ends in a recession. Okay, so Steve, let's start with the, the second point first, because I'm not going to speak to what other hosts have said about the tax plan. Uh, I know Mark is much more positive about the tax plan now than he was when it was first released, because there have been some pretty substantial changes to it in, in the time meanwhile. But uh, let's, let's start with the, the final point here, that Republican presidents always end with a recession. 
So let's be real about something. There's a recession in this country pretty much every 8 to 10 years. Right? Every 8 to 10 years, there seems to be a recession. There was one in 2007, 2008. There was one in 2000. That one really started under President Clinton, the very tail end of President Clinton. There was one at the tail end of uh, George H.W. Bush's term. There's obviously the Carter recession. So there have been a number of recessions under presidents, both Republican and Democrat. One of the great myths of politics is that Whoever is in office as the president gets credit for the economy. So I am actually one of the people who says that President Trump does not get full credit for the strength of the economy right now because he didn't define all the policy of the economy. Just as I said, when Obama was president, he doesn't get credit for the strength of the stock market. The economy is a very complicated creature, and suggesting that one guy makes all the difference in the economy is really simplistic. What I will say about corporate tax cuts and about tax cuts generally is that when you give money back to the people and organizations that are earning the money, they are going to make better decisions with that money than the federal government will. The federal government will dump it down a rat hole somewhere, and you will never see it again. Uh, Six and a half years with George W. Bush, so every conservative uh, thing. Well, I mean, the economy actually grew at a fairly rapid pace until 2007 when it completely bottomed out, and the reason that it bottomed out in 2007 was not because of tax cuts. The reason it bottomed out in 2007 is because of inflationary policy from Alan Greenspan at the Fed combined with the 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 movement in the late years of the Clinton administration to push subprime mortgages for borrowers who couldn't qualify. That was that that was the biggest problem is that everybody went bust. I mean you basically had a Ponzi scheme in real that's estate. That's not the total truth. That's not the total truth and you know it. No, it, it actually is the total truth and I do know that as well. Steve, thanks for the call. I appreciate I appreciate your thoughts. Let's see. Bob in D C you're on the Mark Levin show with Ben Shapiro. Go for it, sir. Yes. Hey um um Ben this is um, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a conservative Democrat, and I don't vote for Republicans primarily because I don't really hear solutions to some of the things. Um, you know, we say that we're going to give a tax break to the um, to the large corporations or whatever. Well, every and, corporation, not just large corporations, obviously. Okay, we to the corporations or to the businesses, we're going to give a tax break to them, and as a result, they're going to do all of these magnanimous things. Uh, not magnanimous; so, they'll do things that jack up their own profit line. I beg your pardon. They'll do things that jack up their own profit line. It's not out of magnanimity. It's not they're just kind. Okay. Well, I'm saying, but you gave all these examples of they're going to give bonuses and things like that. I have an example of the of that that sort of goes against that. If you take the number one and um, the number one public. You know, Bob, I'm sorry to cut you off here, but can you hold over the break? Because I don't want to cut you off here. I want to get the rest of your thought, but we're up on a hard break here. So when we return, more calls on the tax plan. Plus, I want to talk about. A, an establishment conservative's view of Trump and why it is dead wrong. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin, the champion of liberty and true conservatism. Call Mark now, 877-381-3811. All righty, so getting your reaction to the big Republican legislative achievement for the year 2017. President Trump's had many achievements this year, but this is by far the largest achievement in terms of lasting policy, aside from probably the, the appellate court judges and Justice Gorsuch, which are life appointments, obviously. When you talk about legislative achievements, the list has not been long. In fact, it's been nearly non-existent. Most of the achievements have been done in the executive branch. This is a major policy achievement, and I want to get your thoughts on it, because obviously I've been relatively glowing about it today, especially for me. Bob in D.C. held you over the break, wanted to make sure that you got your thought in. Go for it, Bob. Yeah, so um, as I was saying, I'm a conservative Democrat, but 
I've been looking for solutions, I mean, other than just give the money and let everybody make their own decisions of what they want to do with their money. Why isn't that a good solution? I beg your pardon? Why isn't that a good solution? Um, well, I'm going to give you an example right now. Sure. The number one employer of the United, in, within the private employer within the United States is Walmart. Walmart mm-hmm. employs more than the top six other companies combined. Prior right. to the Obamacare, they chose for their profits or whatever, their, their business plan or whatever, that none of the employees except for the full-time employees, which was only the, within the top 10% of the company, would get health care. So when 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 we when when we say we we are greed, I mean I think a part of our nature is to be greed to take money to say okay we're going to take it we're going to keep it for our family. self interest gonna... right yeah okay that's that's fair enough so is so your question is what then because here's here's the problem Bob when the suggestion is that Obamacare fixed this problem it didn't with Walmart I mean it really did well, not. Walmart I mean I can I can read you the policy from Walmart I mean this is from Huffington Post okay so this is a left wing outlet okay Walmart created a new health care policy in the aftermath of Obamacare, what they did is they hired everybody part-time. They began denying health insurance to newly hired employees who worked fewer than 30 hours a week. They didn't say how many of the 1.4 million U.S. workers they had were vulnerable to losing whatever medical insurance they already had under the policy. A bunch of people were put on Medicaid. They were put on part-time work. People lost hours. People went to part-time work instead of full-time work. You can't force companies to voluntarily give up the money. Right, Bob, this, this idea that these companies are going to be more altruistic if you just regulate them and take their money, it's, it's absurd. I mean, if you, if, if you want people to get raises, then you have to allow the companies to make a profit margin. If, and if the argument is that those companies then invest in stock buybacks, which they've been doing for many years, right, which is why you see the, the increase in the stock market, well, guess what? There are a lot of people who are invested in the stock market who are not rich people. Right? All the pension funds are invested in the stock market. You know, Barack Obama was bragging about the, to- the stock market for good reason, because the stock market is not just a place for elites. So, again, you, you say that Republicans don't have solutions, but it seems to me the only solution that Democrats have on all of these things is to blame companies for not wanting to spend money and lose money, and then to take money from those corporations, lower their profit margin, cause them to lay people off or move them to part-time work, and redistribute that money in the form of inefficient welfare schemes that actually keep people in poverty rather than allowing them the possibility of rising on the income level – as their jobs get better and more plentiful. Okay, the the the, um, the statistic that you're quoting there, uh, and from my experience with Walmart, okay, prior to Obamacare, they did not have any full-time employees. The Obamacare required them, even if they had these re- the, the part-time workers, to have insurance for these workers. Now Walmart has has uh, insurance through Obamacare for these workers. So I'm not sure how you how you're you're arranging the. Well, no, the, the, what Obama what I'm saying is that Walmart moved people out of full-time employment and toward partial employment to avoid Obamacare regulations. So the people who they kept no, as no. full-time employees they kicked no. into Obamacare, right? They had to because no, it was the before, before Obamacare, if you worked over 36 hours per week, you had to have insurance for your employees as full-time employees. With Obamacare, even if you're a part-time employee in a company. You have to have insurance for those companies if you have over X number of employees. This is this is not correct. And Bob, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but that, that's just not correct. It was there was an employer mandate in Obamacare. If what you were saying is correct, there would not have to be an employer mandate in Obamacare. Part-time okay. workers were exempt so below a certain saying, number of hours under Obamacare. 
Okay, th- th- this is why Walmart changed its policy. Again, I'm reading this story directly to you from the Huffington Post. So I'm not making well, this up off the top of my head. Okay, I'm, Bob, I'm, I appreciate I'm the call. We can go back and forth like this all day. But again, the solution that the, 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 the solutions that are being posed by the Democrats are not solutions at all. Suggesting that the government removing money from some and giving it to others is somehow going to enrich the country overall, I think is a mistake. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a different topic here, and that is that there's this tendency, you know, as we reach the end of the year, and a lot of people are sort of doing retrospectives on President Trump, and what has his first year been like? You know, ha- what, what angle should we take on President Trump? I think that the conservative movement has basically broken down into, I would say, three categories. This is probably rather broad, but I think this is sort of fair. There are the, there are the always Trumpers, there are the sometimes Trumpers, and there are the never Trumpers. Okay, and I think that people are misdefining these terms. The always Trumpers are people who think that President Trump can do no wrong. Everything is 4D magic. Everything is a genius thing, right? Whether he's getting in a fight with LeVar Ball on Twitter or whether he's passing a tax bill, it's all the same. It's all part of this broad, grand scheme by President Trump. I I don't think that's true. I think President Trump does good stuff, and I think he does bad stuff. I am a sometimes Trumper, meaning that when he does good things, like today, like the last three weeks, and I'm going to talk about many more good things he's been doing today, then I'm very much in favor of him doing those things. I'm a fan of him doing those things. So just like I root for my plumber to fix the pipes, I root for President Trump to fix what ails the country so far as he can under his constitutional office. And then there are the actual never-Trumpers. Okay, not people who didn't vote for Trump in the last election, because never-Trump really died with the last election. Once, once Trump was elected, there's no more never-Trump. Never-Trump really just meant, would you vote for him or would you not? But now there's a group of people, and it's pretty narrow. It's relatively narrow, this group of people. It's people like Jennifer Rubin over at the Washington Post. It's people like David Frum over at the Atlantic. And their view is nothing Trump does can be right. Zero things he does can be right. Because even the things he does right are just contributing to the downfall of conservatism or decency, that even when he passes a good piece of legislation, we should be sad about that because a bad guy is passing a good piece of legislation. And this, I think, is completely foolhardy. The worry, I suppose, is that Trump is corrupting conservatism if he does conservative things. But I don't think that's right. I think conservatism will be there before and after Trump. Right? So long as you hold to conservative principles, so long as you, you're the ones who make the conservative movement, so long as you believe that conservative principles matter, conservatism survives, practically speaking. And the standard of conservatism doesn't change if Trump does something non-conservative. The reason I say this is because there's an, uh, a fight that's now broken out between Charles Cook, who's the editor of National Review, who I'd call probably sometimes Trump, and, and Jennifer Rubin over at the Washington Post. So Charles wrote a very good piece at National Review where he talked about how, the, how Jennifer Rubin had basically shifted every position she ever held in order to bang on Trump. So, for example, she was very much against President Obama when it came to his views on Jerusalem. She said Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. Trump says Jerusalem's the capital of Israel, and suddenly Jennifer Rubin flips sides, and it's bad that Trump said that. Right? Jennifer Rubin was very much against the Iran deal. And then Trump says he's against the Iran deal, and suddenly she says this is out of line. How could he say that, that he's against the Iran deal? You know, this is never Trump. Never Trump are folks who actually switch their own positions to oppose Trump. Sometimes Trump are people whose positions were always the same, right? They're always, and they remain the same. And sometimes Trump is on their side, hopefully most of the time, and sometimes he's not on their side. So Cook went after Rubin for being really wildly anti-Trump. And David Frum, who's another guy who's become a never-Trump guy, who's nothing Trump does, can never be right, he wrote a long defense of Jennifer Rubin. Nowhere in there did he defend her from the accusation that she has switched sides on actual politics in order to smash Trump. Instead, what he said is that anyone who takes Trump day by day, anybody who looks at the stuff Trump does, 
and tries to decide whether it is good or bad, right? Anybody who, who honestly attempts to call balls and strikes with Trump is doing something morally wrong. So here is what David Frum writes. He says, above all, he writes this criticizing Charles Cook, above all, every day should be treated as a blank slate, an opportunity for the truly independent-minded to bestow a tip of the hat or wag of a finger. He says, Jennifer Rubin's crime is that rather than waking up every morning fresh for each day's calling of balls and strikes, she carries into her work the memory of the day before. She sees patterns where Cook only sees incidents. She speaks out even when Cook deems it prudent to hold his tongue. So he's accusing people who call balls and strikes of cowardice, and he is suggesting that if you call balls and strikes that you've forgotten yesterday. Except they didn't forget yesterday. I remember when Trump threw balls. I remember when Trump did things that were wrong. I criticized him. I was there. But it's people like Rubin and David Frum who forget about their own positions, right? Talk about forgetting history. They forget their own positions two years ago because they dislike Trump so much and because they think he's such a grave danger to the republic. And so Frum continues, he says, Cook is following the Republican leadership in the House and Senate and the more presentable of the conservative commentariat. Hope for the best. Make excuses where you can. When you can't make an excuse, keep as quiet as you can. Attack Trump's critics in the media and Hollywood when all else fails. I mean, boy, is that a straw man. Boy, is that a straw man. That folks who are trying to call balls and strikes to be honest about President Trump, that those people are making excuses for him or keeping quiet when he says things that are wrong? Like, who does he think he's talking to? Marcus criticized Trump when he feels like Trump deserves it. I've criticized Trump when I feel like Trump's deserved it to my own detriment. I mean, standing up for principle means that some people aren't going to like it all the time. But this idea that the only way to stand for principle is to stand against Trump is asinine because sometimes Trump is not in conflict with the principle. Like the last three weeks, which as I say, the last three weeks of governance of, by President Trump and by the Republicans are as conservative as any three weeks of governance I have ever seen in my life. But Frum continues, he says, the conservative intellectual world is whipsawed between distaste for President Trump and fear of its own audience. The conservative base has become ever more committed to Trump and ever less tolerant of any deviation. Then he calls out Mark specifically. He suggests that conservative talkers, most susceptible to market pressure, have made the most spectacular conversions and submissions, and he names Mark. He says, Mark Levin. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? Has he, like, listened to three episodes of Mark's show? Mark's been very intellectually honest when it comes to, when it comes to Trump. He was during the election cycle, and he has been now. I mean, we had a caller earlier on who noted that when it came to the Republican tax plan, Mark was very critical when it first came up. When it came to the Republican health care plans, Mark was very critical. And he was critical of Trump, too, when he thought that that was necessary. The idea that there's this vast cadre of people who are being intellectually dishonest because they're afraid of their audience. One thing I know about Mark is that Mark is not afraid of his audience. <laughs> no, that, I really don't know a lot of other hosts who have a bond as strong as Mark does with his audience. There's one line in here that I think is really telling, and this is where I think from really proves how wrong he is on all of this. Right, there's a point in here where he says... Something to the effect of, and I want to find the exact line. He says, ideas are not artifacts, especially of collective ideas we know as ideologies. He says, conservatism is what conservatives think, say, and do. As conservatives change, as much through the harsh fact of death and birth as by fluctuations of opinion, so does what it means to be a conservative. The Trump presidency is a huge political fact. Donald Trump may not be the leader of American conservatism, but he is its most spectacular and vulnerable asset. Therefore, if you defend him, then you are perverting conservatism. No, you're perverting conservatism if you don't defend conservatism. If you defend Trump when he's being conservative, then you are defending conservatism. I mean, that, that, that whole paragraph makes no sense. This idea of conservatism is only what conservatives think, say, and do. So if conservatives all change their mind tomorrow, then the notion of conservatism itself has changed. That's silly. 
It's like saying Christianity is what Christians think, say, and do. Well, no. Christianity is a doctrine. And if Christians were all to convert to Islam tomorrow, they would not make Christianity into Islam. They would just be Muslims now. And the same thing is true of conservatives. If conservatives embraced full-scale nationalized health care, they would no longer be conservative. Ideas don't change. Eternal values don't change. Conservatism is an eternal value. And this is where I think Frum goes totally wrong. I'm not supremely afraid that Trump is going to change what conservatism is. What I'm afraid of, and what I was afraid of with President Trump, is that President Trump was going to teach people that conservatism was something that it was not. That's what I was afraid of. But I'm less afraid of that now than I was a year ago. Because I think that the governmental system has proved itself you know, quite adept at neutralizing some of Trump's worst instincts. And I think that the conservative movement has proved itself quite adept at cheering Trump when he deserves it. I think the conservative movement's a lot more robust than Frum is giving it credit for. I think the fear is that the entire party is going to collapse into some sort of nationalist populist miasma pushed by Steve Bannon. It's not true. Donald Trump is governing much more along the lines of what I would want than what Steve Bannon would want in the last three weeks. Without a doubt. And I hope he continues to do so. Conservatism is what, it's, is, is what is at stake, and conservatives know that. And so far as Trump defends those priorities, we'll continue to push him forward and defend him. And so long as he cuts against those priorities, I think conservatives will need to stand up against him. That's where intellectual honesty lies, and I think it's not intellectually honest to simply bash on Trump because you think he's such a bad guy all the time. When he does a good thing, you cheer it. When he does a good thing, you stand behind him. He deserves credit when he does something right. Now, as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about a, a shockingly great move that President Trump made today. And again, you know, when, when I say that I think Trump is doing something right, you know that he's earned it from me. Okay, I want to talk about a couple of shockingly great things that Trump has done on foreign policy that nobody's paying any attention to, but they're really kind of amazing. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. Ben Shapiro here in for Mark Levin. Another day of winning for President Trump. It's been a very, very good week. Uh, I do love this. This is just, I got a kick out of this, I will admit, a major kick out of this. So, uh, President Trump was asked about a draft UN resolution calling for the United States to withdraw its decision recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, okay, which is absurd. Who gives a tiny little crap about what French Guiana has to say about our embassy. It's our embassy. It's nobody's business. Okay, wh why do we care what the French have to say about whether Jewish territory in Jerusalem remains Jewish territory in Jerusalem and the United States recognizes it as such? Like, what are we going to listen to? The Germans? Like, what? Okay, so the, uh, the UN is threatening, ooh, a General Assembly resolution, ooh, a meaningless resolution, and an organization that our taxpayer dollars fund. So this, you know, when I love Trump, I love him. I mean, this. <laughs> I mean, when he does something right, when he does something right, the stubbornness of the man, when he does something wrong, is really a drawback. But when he does something right, it's kind of glorious. And this is a moment of glory. Here's what Trump told reporters at the White House today. Quote, they take hundreds of millions of dollars and even billions of dollars, and then they vote against us. Well, we're watching those votes. Let them vote against us. We'll save a lot. We don't care. Oh, I love it. Love it. Because we are. We're sponsoring all of these awful countries 
all over the world. We're, we send $400 million every year to the Palestinian Authority, which is a terrorist entity, okay, in a joint government with Islamic Jihad and with the and, and with Hamas, both terrorist groups. We're sending the money. I hope and pray that President Trump follows through on that and just cuts off the cash. I don't want my taxpayer dollars going to these countries. This would be great. The 193-member U.N. General Assembly will hold a rare emergency special session on Thursday to pass a random piece of paper that no one gives a crap about. Ooh. The U.N. is so useless that the U.N. required us to enforce their resolutions against Iraq. Okay, forget about Israel. They required us to enforce their resolutions against Iraq. Nikki Haley, who's one of Trump's better picks, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., she warned that Trump had asked her to report back on countries that voted against us. She said the U.S. will be taking names. As well we should. It's our cash. Well, as we return here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about a story that throws a serious wrench into the notion that Trump is guilty of collusion. Yeah, that sort of is falling apart. And I have the evidence right here in me hands. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Ben Shapiro here in for Mark Levin. Always a pleasure and an honor to sit in for the great one. He is off on holiday vacation. He'll be back after the holiday season. I hope he's enjoying himself. Well-earned vacation for the great one, of course. Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk this year about Russian collusion, collusion with President Trump during the campaign. Called up Vladimir Putin and he said, Vlad, old buddy, will you please help me collude to steal this election? And Vladimir Putin said, of course. And then they proceeded to steal Hillary Clinton's emails and collude on how to release those emails. And then they stole the election by forcing Hillary never, ever to actually go to Wisconsin or Michigan. It was amazing. Now, no evidence of this has actually been proved, like none. Zero zip zilch. Right, all we've gotten is, at best, a willingness to collude by perhaps Donald Trump Jr., saying that he might be willing to work with the Russian government for oppo research. But we see no actual evidence of hard collusion between the Trump administration and the Russian government, despite frenzied attacks for well over now a year from Democrats, despite the Mueller investigation now digging into every nook and cranny of the Trump transition team. I, I'm confused by this, by the way. The entire idea of digging into the transition team, like... I thought that we were investigating collusion to steal the election, not what happened after the election happened. But now apparently all the crimes that have basically been pled to are about lying to the FBI, not about actual underlying crimes. In any case, everybody's hot and bothered about this. Trump must be in the Russians' pockets. Right? The James Clapper, that, that pathetic specimen, uh, former head of the CIA under President Obama, he came out over the weekend uh, or earlier this week, and he said something to the effect of, you know, Vladimir Putin treats Donald Trump like he's an asset, like he's an intelligence asset. Then you had to walk it back and say, I didn't mean that literally. It was meant figuratively. He treats him like he's an intelligence asset. You know, he flatters him. He wines and dines him. And then Trump gives him exactly what he wants. Trump is in Putin's pocket. Okay. Today, it is reported from the Washington Post, quote, this is a very puzzling development, folks. You ready? Quote, 
The Trump administration has approved the first ever U.S. commercial sale of lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine in a clear break from the de facto U.S. ban on arms sales that dates back to the Obama administration. The move was heavily supported by top Trump national security cabinet officials in Congress, but may complicate President Trump's stated ambition to work with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Administration officials confirmed that the State Department this month approved a commercial license authorizing the export of model M107A1 sniper systems, ammo, and associated parts and accessories to Ukraine, a sale valued at $41.5 million. These weapons address a specific vulnerability of Ukrainian forces fighting a Russian-backed separatist movement in two eastern provinces. There's been no approval to export heavier weapons the Ukrainian government is asking for. Congress authorized such sales in 2014 in the Ukraine Freedom Support Act. But, hmm, puzzling, the Obama administration never made a decision to follow through. A move widely seen as de facto decision not to provide lethal weapons to the Ukrainian military. Why, it's almost as though the Obama administration kowtowed more often to Moscow than Trump does. But, but, it can't be! Trump's the one who's in the pay of the Russians. Trump's the secret Ruski. Trump is the spy who came in from the cold. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker, who co-sponsored the law, praised the administration's move. He said, I'm pleased the administration approved the sale of defensive lethal arms to Ukraine. The decision was supported by Congress and legislation that became law three years ago and reflects our country's long-standing commitment to Ukraine in the face of ongoing Russian aggression. So we've talked a lot about collusion. The only collusion that I see, the clear collusion that I see, is Obama saying in 2012, in the middle of an election cycle, directly on microphone to a Russian government top source, to Dmitry Medvedev, who is then the leader of the country, please tell Vladimir to back off. I'll have flexibility after the election. That sounds a lot more like collusion than anything the Obama than anything the Trump administration or Trump campaign has done. This law was passed in 2014. Let's see. Does anyone remember who was president from 2014 to 2016? Yeah, play that Jeopardy music. Do we know? Oh, that that. Was it was it Trump? No, it was not Trump. It was Barack Obama who would not give lethal defense to the Ukrainians. But who just did it? Why, it was Trump, that Russian tool. Clearly, he's guilty of something. What a clever guy he is. You know, this, this must just be part of his cover. It must be part of his cover. In order to cover up the fact he's working with the Russians, he just gave weapons to people who shoot Russians in, in, in defense of their country. You know, clearly, that's got to be the case. A State Department spokesperson speaking on background, according to the Post, said that although the U.S. has now licensed the commercial export of lethal weapons to Ukraine for the first time, the U.S. government has not sold or given weapons directly to Ukraine. There's never been any official policy on such sales one way or another. A senior Trump official said Trump personally approved the decision to allow the licensing after being presented a decision memo by SecDef Jim Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. So... Again, this is, this must be very puzzling to all of those who think that Trump is a Russian tool. Now, speaking of people who actually were Russian tools, you know, members of the Obama administration were working with the Russians to ensure that Iran was able to get whatever it wanted in the lead-up to the Iranian nuclear deal. Eli Lake has a very good piece over at Bloomberg View today, and here's what he says. This is when the Obama administration sold its Iran nuclear deal to Congress in 2015, one of its primary arguments was that the agreement was narrow. It lifted only nuclear sanctions. America, President Obama told us, would remain a vigilant foe of Iran's regional predations through sanctions and other means. Thanks to stunning new reporting from Politico's Josh Meyer, we can now assess these assertions and conclude that they are, well, alternative facts. Meyer reports 
that while the U.S. and other great powers were negotiating a deal to bring transparency to Iran's nuclear program, top officials in Obama's government dismantled a campaign known as Operation Cassandra, intended to undermine Hezbollah's global drug trafficking and money laundering network. Understand, Obama was letting Hezbollah do what it wanted because it's a tool of Iran, and he was working with the Russians to do that. Obama was, not Trump. Not Trump. Not Mike Flynn, not Donald Trump Jr., Barack Obama and his administration. A few months after the implementation of that bargain, in January 2016, Operation Cassandra was whipped, ripped apart. Agents were reassigned. Leads and sources dried up. Bad guys got away. Hezbollah is an arm of Iranian foreign policy, writes Eli Lake. Hezbollah shock troops fight along Iran's Revolutionary Guard commanders in Syria and Iraq. Iran uses the group's operatives for international terror attacks in Latin America. Hezbollah's advanced arsenal is supplied by the Iranian state. Hezbollah's drug trafficking provides the revenue it needs to spread mayhem. To curb that trafficking is to starve Iran's primary proxy. But the Obama administration, because they wanted Iran to be a regional power, believed that cracking down on Hezbollah's trafficking would undermine nuclear negotiations. David Asher is a former Pentagon illicit finance analyst and a key player in the operation. He said, quote, this was a policy decision. It was a systematic decision. They serially ripped apart this entire effort that was very well supported and resourced. It was done from the top down. One example. Here you get into Russian collusion territory. You ready? Here we go. One example involves Ali Fayyad, whom DEA agents suspected was the Hezbollah operative who reported directly to Russian President Vladimir Putin as a weapons supplier in Iraq and Syria. So you have a guy who's directly working for Hezbollah and the Russians. He was arrested by the Czechs in 2014. Did the United States ask for his extradition? Why no? Even though Fayyad was indicted by U.S. courts for planning the murder of American officials, quote, Top Obama administration officials declined to apply serious pressure on the Czech government to extradite him to the United States, even as Putin was lobbying aggressively against it. So Vladimir Putin didn't want this guy brought to the United States? And guess who acquiesced to that request? Why, it was our good friend, Barack Obama. You know, the guy who thinks that Trump colludes. Fayyad eventually found his way back to Lebanon, is believed today to be back at his old job, supplying Russian heavy weapons to Iranian-backed militants in Syria. Thank you, President Obama. Eli Lake is right. He says if the Trump administration had let Fayyad slip through the net of law enforcement, that would be a five-alarm scandal. And yet Obama, this is part of a pattern. Obama never asked Syria's neighbors to deny flyover rights to Russian aircraft in 2015, which could have slowed or prevented Putin from establishing air bases in Syria used to bomb civilians and aid workers. Russia established those air bases less than two months after the end of Iran nuclear negotiations. The chief of Iran's Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, also saw the close of the nuclear talks as a green light. He was soon on a plane to Moscow to iron out the tactical alliance between Russia and Iran in Syria as Obama went about trying to persuade more than a third of Congress to support the nuclear bargain. When you talk about collusion to undermine American foreign policy on behalf of political advantage, Barack Obama is the name at the top of that ledger, not Donald Trump. Barack Obama. And then the, the gall of these people. I mean, honestly, the tremendous gall of these folks, is it is astonishing. Susan Rice, the national security advisor under President, under President Obama, and she has a piece in today's, in today's New York Times, despite all of this, right? She was there for all of this. Despite all of this, she has a piece in today's New York Times in which she claims that under Trump, America is no longer a global force for good. This is the same administration that was ensuring that Iran not only had a pathway to a nuclear weapon, but had an immediate advantage in terms of gaining regional power. And worked with the Russians to do that. And then Susan Rice, 
Same lady who got on TV and lied to us over and over and over again about Benghazi. This lady is lecturing us about America not being a global force for good? No administration in modern American history has been as bad a force for America in the world as the Obama administration. No administration in modern American history has been as bad for promoting American interests abroad and American ideology abroad as the Obama administration, which sided with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which sided with the Palestinians against the Israelis, which sided with the Iranians against everybody. This is an administration that deserves to be looked at with a, with a cold eye. The idea that Trump is somehow corruptly colluding when you can look directly at the facts on the ground and see that the Obama administration was not only doing it, but impacting foreign policy this way, just demonstrates the disconnect between how the media wishes the story went and how the story actually goes. Well, as we continue here on the Mark Levin Show, I want to talk about a weird notion that seems to have cropped up in certain feminist circles that it's not just that no means no when it comes to sex, right, which we all agree with, that no means no, but that yes also means no? I will explain. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin. So one of the big problems with the left discarding every standard of sexual morality, all traditional standards of sexual morality, they must go. They just re-enshrine the patriarchy. One of the problems with that is that you end up in this bizarre space where people have sex and they don't feel really good about it. It's not really rape. It's not really sexual abuse. But they don't feel good about it and they feel kind of crappy about it. And then they sort of want there to be consequences to that. But if there were consequences, then they'd have to draw lines. And this makes things really awkward in the Me Too moment where we're talking about criminal prosecution or career ends for people who are accused of things without proper evidence or even without a proper standard. What I'm talking about here is over the weekend, there's a woman named Jessica Bennett. She's a gender editor of the New York Times. Yes, that is a real job. I'm not kidding. There's a gender editor at the New York Times. And she, I assume, wrote a piece titled, quote, When saying yes is easier than saying no. In this piece, Miss Bennett argues that in many cases, women actually say yes to sex, but they don't really want to, right? They're saying yes, but they, they don't want to have sex. She says sometimes yes means no. Oh, boy, this is going to get bad. So we know no means no. Now yes means no. So the only safe answer is no, but if you say no to a woman who's saying yes, then you're a sexist and depriving her of agency, but she might be saying no depending on her tone of voice. You can see how this might get a little dicey. She says, sometimes yes means no, but simply because it is easier to go through with it than explain our way out of the situation. Sometimes no means yes, because you actually do want to do it, but you know you're not supposed to, lest you be labeled a slut. And if you're a man... That no often means just try harder because, you know, persuasion is part of the game. So now here's where we are. Yes sometimes means no. No sometimes means yes. No doesn't always mean no, and yes doesn't always mean yes. But yes is supposed to mean yes, and no is supposed to mean no. Got it? Are we straight here? Bennett then continues by arguing that consent is actually societally defined. She says our idea of what we want, of our own desire, is linked to what we think we're supposed to want. Well, okay, now I think everyone's just confused, and the safest solution is probably just to have sex inside marriage. I'm right, if you don't want to get accused of rape, then have sex inside marriage. So I'm glad that the left eventually ended up at my biblical standard for when you should have sex. They went the long way around, but they ended up back with me. But they don't want to embrace that. So instead, they just decide to 
talk about how confused they are. And the problem is that that, that confusion is fine. Be as confused as you want to be. But what they actually want is to prosecute people and end their careers based on their own confusion and lack of standards. And that is a problem. In the pages of The New Yorker, there's a there's a woman who just got a $1 million book advance, a $1 million book advance for writing a short story called Cat Person in The New Yorker. This story is about a 20-year-old woman who basically is interested in a guy. They text back and forth. She's kind of interested. She's kind of not. They get drunk. They go back to his place. She says she wants to have sex with him. She's in the middle of sex with him. She sort of was wants to. She sort of doesn't. She goes through with it. She doesn't like it. She feels bad about it. And then he texts her, and she ignores him, and then finally he calls her a whore. Like, that's the entire short story in 45 seconds or less. This thing has a bajillion hits. Why? Because apparently it speaks to a lot of women who feel confused about whether they really want it or whether they really don't or whether their consent is full or whether it's them just doing things to meet expectations. Right? What exactly? So here's the question. Men are the ones who are on the line, right? Men are the ones who are going to be prosecuted and going to lose their jobs. So what the hell are they supposed to do? As a society, we're beyond suggesting that women are doing anything wrong in consenting to non-marital sex. Women are free to do whatever they want. They can consent. They cannot consent. They can even get up the next morning in some cases and decide they didn't consent. But right now we're in the midst of a push to punish male aggressors. Well, if consent means nothing, if yes means no, no means yes, then how are men supposed to operate in this universe? Well, maybe the problem is expectations. You know, maybe the problem here is not that women are acquiescing to male expectations of sex. It's that women are acquiescing to a different kind of expectation, an expectation from the feminist left that they are supposed to fight the patriarchy by participating in promiscuity. I'll explain what I mean in just a second, because I think there's something deeper here that has some real ramifications. Plus, I want to do my year-end review of President Trump. Give him a grade. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Oh, so, sorry. Let me, I actually have time to finish the thought. That's exciting. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, that, okay, so going back to this feminist expectation, there's an expectation that women, I'm, I'm part of feminists, that women have to treat sex, casual, sex casually or they fall prey to reinforcing the patriarchy. Now, if you ask a person of traditional moral standards whether a woman should have said no, they would say, yeah, no, in all these stories. The answer is, sure, they should say no. But then you're regarded as a prude. So if you hold by religious standards, you're a prude. Feminists say you should have sex, and if you don't want to have sex, you're a prude. And there are costs to societal expectations. Traditional mores ruled out the male expectation of sex in non-commitment scenarios. Men had hopes of sex, right? All men do pretty much all the time. But we didn't have any expectation that hopes would be realized outside of commitment. But thanks to the feminist movement, now men can expect sex and not expect commitment to be attached. And then women are sorry about that. Because very often they want commitments attached. One way to answer confusion is with standards. The left is providing none. Now, as we return here on the Mark Levin Show, I'm going to talk about what the media is doing about sexual harassment. The answer? Not much. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. It's true that Mark Levin is the fastest growing radio show in America. The Mark Levin Show is on at 877-381-3811. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. So we're talking about a lot of the confusion that is set in about sexual standards when yes means no and no means yes and nobody knows the answers. What this actually does when we don't have any standards is it creates enough gray area for people to sneak on through. It creates gray area. One of the guys who I thought sort of got caught up 
I will admit, a little bit unfairly in all of this was Glenn Thrush. Glenn Thrush was the New York Times reporter. He was suspended from the paper last month because there was an internal investigation of sexual misconduct allegations against him. And it looked a lot like the allegations where he would get drunk with various women that he worked with and then make out with them and then stop when they told him to. That seemed like that was the, the extent of the allegations. If I'm misremembering that, if he did something more severe than that, then obviously I take back everything I'm about to say. Is this good judgment? I don't think it's good judgment. Is it Harvey Weinstein? I don't think so. One of the things that's been crazy about a lot of the Me Too talk has been the lack of nuance. And I don't mean that there should be nuance about the good and evil of sexually harassing or sexually abusing women, God forbid. I've been as strong on this as anybody. What I do mean is that the punishment for for sexual harassment is not the same as the punishment for Harvey Weinstein raping someone. Matt Damon said this, and the left went insane on him. Now, believe me, I am no fan of Matt Damon. He's... Not my favorite. I think he's a good actor. I find him entertaining. He is not a great thinker. Right? He's a guy who thinks that he's an intellectual because he can reference Howard Zinn. But what he was saying, basically, is that while we should fight all of this stuff, there are obviously gradations in terms of evil. Right? Some behavior is more evil than other behavior, even if all the behavior is evil. And because we fail to draw any lines, what we end up doing is actually watering down the really bad stuff. People do really bad stuff, and then we treat it like people did pretty bad stuff, and then we all lump it together. And what that actually allows is people who are doing really bad stuff to get off the hook. Now, the media has been complicit in all this, right? The media lumps together everybody. The media has no lines whatsoever. In the Me Too moment, every woman is to be believed, and every allegation is to be treated with equal seriousness, which is what makes it ironic that the New York Times has now said that they are going to Return Glenn Thrush to duty. So Glenn Thrush, as I say, there were allegations of sexual misconduct against him. He was accused of inappropriate sexual behavior. The newspaper launched an investigation into his conduct after it learned that Vox planned to publish a story detailing the allegations. So the New York Times did an, they did an investigation. Uh, the New York Times executive editor, Dean Baquette, he wrote in a memo, quote, Each case has to be evaluated based on individual circumstances. We believe this is an appropriate response to Glenn's situation. He'll be allowed to resume work in January, but he'll no longer cover the White House. In other words, this measure makes no sense. Either you think Glenn Thrush doesn't deserve to be punished, really, or you punish him by firing him or suspending him. But moving him off the White House beat is just a way for you to avoid his name appearing too often in widely trafficked bylines. It's a way to avoid shame and also avoid a lawsuit from Glenn Thrush. Right. Paquette said the investigation found that Thrush behaved offensively, but that he did not deserve to be fired. The memo also notes that Thrush is currently undergoing counseling and substance abuse rehabilitation on his own. The memo was sent to the newspaper staff on Wednesday. So several women last month accused Thrush of unwanted groping and kissing in a story published by Vox. It was not clear from the story when I read it that women said no and then he groped or kissed them. It was more like he went in for a kiss and then they said no, which, granted, is not ideal. But it's the difference between being a pig and actually being a sexual assaulter, I think. So all, the, all this behavior is bad, but gradations of bad exist. I mean, Thrush said in a statement, I apologize to any woman who felt uncomfortable in my presence and for any situation where I behaved inappropriately. Any behavior that makes a woman feel disrespected or uncomfortable is unacceptable. And that last statement is a little broad for me. Any behavior that makes a woman feel disrespected is unacceptable? Disrespected? Like, how do you know how she feels until after she until after she says it? Now, I come from a culture where you're not allowed to touch women without permission, like not allowed to touch them without permission. So I'm stricter on this than pretty much anybody. But the lack of standards is going to lead to bad guys getting off and good guys getting caught up in it, or at least not good guys, but, but mediocre guys getting caught up in the middle of it. 
This is not Matt Lauer activity, in other words. Now, somebody who will be stepping down is Al Franken. So Franken finally has announced the date that he is going to leave. So he says that he's going to remain in office for the remainder of 2017. He's going to step down during the first week of the new year, according to The Hill. So he will leave January 2nd. He will be replaced by a woman who was the former co-head of Planned Parenthood in the state of Minnesota. So that's just great, real upgrade there. You know, I, w- I was concerned that Franken wasn't going to step down at all, and those rumors had been building because there was this movement inside Congress demonstrating that for the left, going after Roy Moore was not about grabbing the moral high ground, it was about grabbing the political high ground. There was a movement on the left to reinstate Al Franken, to make Al Franken a thing again, to basically say, well, you know, was it that bad, and then bring him back in the Senate. Now, in Al Franken's case, it was that bad. I mean, he was legitimately going to photo lines and grabbing women by the tuchas. Now, as a person who does many, many photo lines a year, I speak on 20, 30 college campuses a year. I do photo lines with literally thousands of students. Not one time has my hand drifted below the shoulder area because that's messed up. Right? Al Franken deserves to go. The Democrats, however, have exposed their hand. So many of them came out and said, you know, maybe Al should stay. Then it really showed that the whole Roy Moore thing, you know, as despicable as I thought the entire Roy Moore episode was, the entire Roy Moore thing from the left was not about establishing a moral high ground. It was not about our new standard is no sexual abuse, no sexual misconduct. Their standard was so long as it's a Republican and so long as we can use that standard in order to hurt Republicans. So they were willing to get rid of Franken when they thought Moore was going to win because once Moore won, they could say, listen, the Republicans have no standards. They tolerate Moore. We wouldn't even tolerate Al Franken. Moore lost, and so there were a lot of people who said, well, maybe we should, maybe we should go back on that. Maybe we should grab Franken again. Maybe that would be good. So... You know, the, the, the lack of moral credibility on the left certainly exists. With that said, uh, it, is, it is true that Al Franken is leaving, and that is a, a good thing for the Senate. I think that anything that increases the standard of behavior in the Senate would be a useful and good thing. Okay, so quickly here, I want to do a quick rundown on my sort of year interview for President Trump. And I, I've, I believe I was the creator of the Good Trump, Bad Trump model. I actually created it on my podcast. The, uh, we actually have a theme song for it, Good Trump, Bad Trump, which one will it be today? And I've evaluated President Trump along those lines for his entire administration. When he does something good, we praise him. When he does something bad, we criticize him. And I think that's the fair way to deal with him, just like you would with anyone else in this office. He's won a lot of victories this year, and most of them have not been covered by the media. Most of President Trump's losses this year have been really in terms of his own rhetoric. Now, I know there are a lot of folks on the right who believe that we should just ignore what Trump says in favor of what Trump does. Right? So he says dumb things on Twitter sometimes. Okay, so he says silly things sometimes. So he makes controversies for no reason. But so what? He's doing good things that you like. And the reason that I object to this particular perspective is because half of what a president does is project an image of the world, project a, a philosophy and an ideology. The reason that we all love Ronald Reagan is not because we remember all the specific actions that he took as president. We don't remember how many regulations he cut. We know generally he cut regulations. We don't remember, many of us, the size of the tax cuts. Ronald Reagan is an icon to me. I was born in 1984, so I don't even remember the Reagan administration. He's an icon to me because of the image he projected of American conservatism and the ideology and philosophy he embraced. So half the job, at least, is the philosophy you embrace and the ideology that you push and the way in which you do that. What you remember about Ronald Reagan is that he finished off the Soviet Union, and you remember that he stood for American conservatism and the notion of a small government conservatism that that put your freedoms first. So when we talk about President Trump, 
yes, we evaluate what he does, but we also have to evaluate what he says. And there's such a stark divide between what Trump did and what he said this year that it's almost hard to gauge because a lot of what he did is just great. A lot of what he did is just fantastic. And a lot of what he said was not. And what I would love to see is if the president could control himself. I mean, everyone's been saying this, but if the president could just use his capacity, his his obvious charisma, if he could use the capacity to gather cameras to say the right things, then he would have a chance to be an all-time great president. Because look, this is what he did today. Okay, I'm just going to, not today, this year. Here's what he did. I'm going to run through the list really quickly. Hey, obviously, number one, Justice Gorsuch. Number two, the defeat of ISIS. Ross Dudehead, who was no Trump acolyte, and he wrote in the New York Times, quote, If you had told me in late 2016 that almost a year into the Trump era, the caliphate would be all but beaten without something far worse happening in the Middle East, I would have been surprised and gratified. Now, it's true, Trump carried out a partially Obama strategy, but he also freed the military to do more. The soaring stock market, the excellent growth in unemployment statistics, can't credit Trump totally with those, but I will say that Trump being in office means that people feel comfortable investing their money because they know that Trump is not interested in screwing business owners. Trump is not a guy who stands with his feet athwart business owners trying to harm them. Trump's presence in the office makes people more secure to invest their money to hire employees for good reason. And one of his great achievements has been cutting regulations. Trump brags he's cut 22 regulations for each new one created. That is an excellent record. Now, it's important that President Trump actually get his approval ratings up because a lot of those regulations could theoretically be put back in place by the next president. But you have to give him credit for what he's done. Curbing the Iran deal. Not only has... Trump decertified the Iran deal, which should lead to new sanctions, I would hope. But he's helped build up a new alliance between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and and Israel against Obama's Iran-led Middle East. That's a wonderful development in the Middle East. As part of that, he announced Jerusalem as Israel's capital. A great move that finally puts Israel on equal footing with every other nation on the face of the earth that gets to pick its own capital. And also makes Israel a legitimate part of this anti-Iranian coalition. Because it's clear now, the Saudis today basically said to the Palestinians, sit down, shut up, we have more important fish to fry. That's because of President Trump. And President Trump has moved to open public lands. Half the West, more than half the West, of the United States is owned by the federal government and run by the federal government, fenced off from private use. Trump has moved to open up a lot of those lands. He's now opened up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the new tax bill to drilling. He's passed new sanctions on North Korea. There's not that much he can do about North Korea, but what... Ever anybody could have done, he has done there. The repeal of the individual mandate, major accomplishment. Major accomplishment. Now, we need to follow that up with regulatory cuts, or it's going to just turn into another government-run boondoggle. It'll just be another government guarantee of cash to people. But repealing the individual mandate is a center plank of Obamacare, and it was repealed. Tax reform, obviously the big win today. A record number of appellate court appointments. He has nominated and confirmed 12 appellate court judges, more than any other president in history in his first year. He pulled out from the Paris Accords. The travel ban, the much maligned travel ban, finally got through the courts, as it should have in the first place. And he's really focused on unshackling the military and supporting police. These are all the good things that President Trump has done in his first year. And that is a good agenda. That's a very, very good agenda. Now, when we come back, I want to talk about the downside. I want to talk about how I think President Trump can raise his grade in the next year. Because I'll give you my, my final yearly grade for President Trump this year. I'm trying to be as objective as possible, and I'm giving him room for growth. I'll give you all that coming up. Ben Shapiro in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin.
So I've been going through President Obama's ups and downs this year. I just went through all of his ups, and it's a long list. A lot of very good things that the President of the United States has accomplished. I saw President Trump. Jeez, Louise. Man, I am out of it today. Getting close to the end of the year. President Trump has done a lot of good things. President Obama did virtually none. President Trump's done a lot of good things. I do want to be intellectually honest and go through some of the things that I think are bad that President Trump has done this year. And they are virtually all in the realm of the rhetorical, which should be the thing that he's best at. That should be that he's a marketer extraordinaire, right? That's how he got here. He got here by being great at putting his name on buildings and being on TV and marketing himself, right? That is what Trump is supposed to be a genius at. So, Mr. President, please do better, because here's the thing. If you get all of our agenda items done, and then we lose in 2018 because your approval ratings are not good, and then we lose in 2020, and you lose in 2020, and all of this gets rolled back, then policy can be rolled back. But political victory requires you to actually become an advocate for your own belief system and what I hope would be a conservative belief system that you're learning about on a day-to-day basis. Because all of the stuff that's a drawback for Trump is all rhetorical, right? It's everything from the Charlottesville response earlier this year to the Obamacare repeal failures to the the foolish move of picking Mike Flynn and to the to the useless firing of James Comey under silly circumstances to the failures of the border wall. The biggest thing for President Trump, the biggest obstacle he has, is this constant barrage of nonsense, right? It's it's the constant barrage of silly. Right, shouting fake news at real news, jabbering about crowd size, asking why there was a civil war, telling myths about General Pershing, a week's long crusade against the NFL, fighting with LeVar Ball. Right? None of this stuff is none of this stuff is useful to President Trump. And the proof is that every time President Trump goes overseas, his approval rating rises ten points because he doesn't have time to tweet and watch TV. The president, I believe, can be capable of becoming the best advocate for his own point of view. And I don't mean his point of view on whatever the news of the day is. We have people who comment on that professionally. I mean, the point of view of conservatives, the people who elected him, the people who want him to succeed, who have an interest in the policies he's been pursuing for the last three weeks. So my final grade for President Trump this year is, I know people are going to think I'm being harsh, it's a C plus, because I think he could have gotten a lot more done if he weren't distracted with foolishness. And I think that gives room for growth. Now, that's that's a significant move, by the way. Three weeks ago, I would have given him a C minus. The last three weeks, I think, have been great. I think the last three weeks have been an A. I want to see more A's from President Trump. Now, I want to leave on a on a light note here. So this should make you feel good going into the holidays here. And that is a story. It's a new poll about Hillary Clinton. I just, I you have to love this. Okay, Hillary Clinton, the beloved of the media, the most popular woman of all time, a woman the media decided had to be president. She just had to be. And if you didn't love her, it was because you hated women. If you didn't love her, it was because you were some sort of crazy sexist. What are you? A rube? What's wrong with you? Hillary Clinton's approval ratings have hit an all-time low. Okay, it's December 20th. They've hit an all-time low, according to a new Gallup poll, measured her favorability from December 4th through December 11th. Her approval rating is down five points since June. She's at 36% in the approval ratings. Her favorable, her unfavorable rating is at 61%. That is a new high. A year after being offed in a general election, she is down to 36%. President Trump's numbers are about in the same place, and nothing has changed. His favorability in this poll is at 35%. But in a head-to-head matchup, in a head-to-head matchup between Trump and Hillary Clinton, guess who prevails? Still, a year later, (laughs) President Trump takes it 41 to 36. 
because the nonstop suckage that was Hillary Clinton never will stop. And we can only hope that the Democrats continue to be driven so crazy by the state of modern politics that they decide to nominate somebody as incompetent as Hillary Clinton. They decide to go full Hillary. More of this, please. Republicans aren't very good at politics. They're not. They're not good at pushing their own point of view. They're not good at promulgating the rationale for their policy. But they do have one solid thing moving in their advantage in 2018, aside from conservatism itself. And that is, Democrats are just god-awful at this. My goodness, Democrats are bad at this. There will be a way for Democrats to blow this. Right now, they're up heavy in the generic ballot. Republicans have to do better. But I think we can count on a few Democratic slip-ups between now and then, just because there are a lot of days ending in Y, and Democrats make mistakes, every single one of them. Well, it's been a pleasure sitting in the Great One's chair. I'm Ben Shapiro, sitting in for Mark Levin. Thanks so much. 